Hi, and welcome back to The Resident Review. I'm Rosie Tillis, Duke Plastic Surgery Resident. And I'm Lily Mindy, one of the Duke Plastic Surgery Chief Residents. Yay. And we're here today talking about um, cleft lip and palate. And this is this episode is part of our Back to Basics, which covers some of the common topics and terminology in areas of our field. Thanks for having me, Rosie. I am super excited to talk about cleft lip and palate today. <laughs> I um, I know when I was a medical student, CMF felt really intimidating to me. There was so much to know. And so what we're trying to do here today is just break everything down um, for people when they're just starting out so they can feel um, empowered to have a great experience um, clinically and in the operating room. Definitely. This is one of the areas where you, if you have to understand the basics before you can understand the complexities of what people are talking about. Awesome. So let's get started. We're going to focus um, in this episode on cleft lip and palate, and we're going to talk about um, some of the epidemiology, the embryology, genetics, anatomy, and then what type of surgeries we do for these patients and the timing of those surgeries. So just to start, cleft lip and or palate is sort of a different entity from an isolated cleft palate. Cleft lip with or without a palate is um, has a higher frequency in males to females. It's two to one. It also has a higher frequency um, in patients who are of Asian descent. It's noted to be one out of 500 um, versus one out of a thousand for patients who are white and one out of 2000 for patients who are black in the United States. Isolated cleft palate does not have the same racial and ethnic differences and is about one out of every 1500 to 2000. Um, when we think about a cleft lip and or palate, the left side is much more common than the right. And both of these are more common than bilateral. If you want to remember which one's more common, just think that the word left is literally all the letters that make up cleft. I've and literally never thought of that. Yeah, it's okay. It took me six years to realize <laughs> that. So 10% of cleft lip and or palate have associated syndromes, whereas isolated cleft palate is associated with syndrome in 50%. Um, Rosie, real briefly, what are sort of the key um, embryologic points that we need to know for cleft lip and palate? Yeah. So as the face is developing, the different facial prominences come together um, at around different time periods and gestation. So cleft lip usually happens or establishes around five to six weeks by a failure of fusion of the medial nasal process to the maxillary process in the face. Um, so if you think of it, it's just spatially yeah, in the middle, not I know to the side. Yeah, and I know we're on a podcast, but there's some great visuals of this in many of our, our textbooks, and you can see the embryology of the face. And then cleft palate, similarly, is a little bit later. It's seven to eight weeks, and this is due to failure of fusion of the palatal shelves. And the primary palate is secondary to failure of fusion failure of fusion of the front and nasal prominence and the secondary palate is maxillary prominences. And the primary palate is the front part, the hard palate, and the secondary palate is the is also soft. part of the hard. Oh, sorry. All right. This is a great point. This, this is, is great. yeah. This is a great point. And this is why we're having this conversation. So let's skip real briefly just to anatomy. And let's talk really briefly about the anatomy of the cleft palate. So there is a soft palate and a hard palate and the soft palate is posterior. The hard palate is anterior. I kid you not. I'm in the OR. You get this question. Just feel with your tongue. Always going to get it right. Okay. And then the hard palate is further subdivided by the incisive foramen. 
the primary palate is anterior to the incisive foramen and the secondary palate is posterior to the incisive foramen. So this can be a source of confusion. And so I'm glad that we could clarify that. I'm trying to feel my hard and soft palate right now with my tongue. And I'm going to be honest, if you can feel your soft palate with your tongue, I'm really impressed. Well, you can definitely feel on the answer aspect of your mouth and appreciate that it's quite hard. <laughs> Help you answer that question. All right. Hopefully y'all can, can maybe remember this easier than we do. All right. So risk factors for cleft lip and palate are going to be um, young or older maternal age, paternal age greater than 30, and then several different um, teratogenic substances that the mom um, either ingests or is exposed to um, during her uh, pregnancy, such as smoking, um, alcohol, caffeine that are associated with syndromes, um, as well as steroid use um, and anticonvulsants. All right, there's not really a single gene that's associated with um, cleft lip and palate. However, many of the genetic syndromes that are associated with cleft lip and or palate have genes that are associated with them. Also, as I mentioned before, isolated cleft palate is genetically distinct from a cleft lip with or without a cleft palate. And there's sometimes we get asked questions about the relative frequencies. If you have a parent who has a cleft lip and and or palate, or you have a child, what is the likelihood that you'd have another child with that? Um, and if you have an affected parent, then the likelihood you have a child with cleft lip and or palate is about three to 5%. If you have one child, the likelihood of a second child is 4%. If you had two children, the likelihood of an additional child is 9% and, and so forth from there. All right, as we mentioned, only about 10% of cleft lip and their palate patients have associated syndromes, whereas isolated cleft palate is associated with um, uh, a syndrome in about 50% of the cases. All right, Rosie, mm -hmm. when you're seeing a cleft lip or palate um, patient, maybe like a newborn or you're talking with a mom or a family um, who is has had a prenatal diagnosis of cleft lip and their palate, what types of things are you thinking about? So when I'm talking to these kind of families, um, the things that we ask about are some of their prenatal history or perinatal history as well, any family history of clefts and syndromic features of family members as well. Um, we'll want to you know, find out from them if they have any information about the cleft, about the extent of the cleft. Um, if it's prenatal, they can often tell you what the ultrasound shows, but we don't really know the exact phenotype until they're born. Um, we also, when we're evaluating these kids to see if they have any associated syndromes, we'll look at any signs of micronathia. So small jaws, dysmorphic facial features. Um, a lot of the syndromes will have um, hypoplasia of the maxilla. And they may also have craniosynostosis, which is an abnormal head shape. This so, craniosynostosis is um, premature fusion mm -hmm. of the cranial sutures, right? So that can result in a head shape that mm -hmm. um, doesn't have um, sort of a... Um, native anatomy. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so we're looking at all of these features and also any comorbidities of the child. So if they have, if they've been found to have heart defects or anything like that, um, you know, if they're having difficulty feeding, maybe there's either some issues with the larynx or the lungs or something like that as well. So we ask all of these problems to kind of figure out the phenotype of the cleft and um, figure out whether or not we should get some genetic testing and, and see if there's a awesome. associated. So basically we are asking the family what the medical history is of the pregnancy and any past um, family history. We're evaluating the patient, you know, doing a clinical exam, looking at where the cleft is located, what parts are involved, um, 
trying to identify if there's any other comorbidities, if there's any syndrome that we're concerned for. Um, and then another thing that we are looking at is how the child is doing with feeding. Um, a lot of times patients who have a cleft palate, they're going to have, they might have difficulty with feeding since um, in order to feed as a newborn, this requires creating a sort of a suction either with um, a nipple in breastfeeding or with a bottle nipple in bottle feeding. And they have difficulty generating that suction when they have a palate or a cleft of their palate. Um, so we're often getting speech involved and helping make sure the family has the right resources. And then lastly, you mentioned some of these children um, can have difficulties breathing if they have other associated syndromes. And so I'm um, looking at that. All right. So let's just jump quickly into some of the anatomy. Um, so in a cleft lip, you have an imbalance of the muscle, you have skeletal hypoplasia, and you have some asymmetries of the skeletal base. Of note, just something to think about is that a complete versus an incomplete cleft, a complete cleft is going to extend into the nasal floor, whereas an incomplete cleft doesn't extend into the nasal floor. So definitely with a complete cleft, you're going to have um, some distortion of like the lower lateral cartilages and of the way that the, the nose appears, especially in the, in the ailer region. Mm -hmm. You'll kind of see a flattening of the nostril on the cleft side. And you may see a band of skin across the bottom of the nostril. That does not mean this is a trap because that does not mean that it's incomplete. It may still be complete. Um, so you kind of have to do a further exam of the nose. Full exam of everything, exactly. And then in a bilateral cleft lip, you have that separate central portion, and that is called the prolabium and the premaxilla. And these are going to be completely separate from the lateral lip and the, and the maxilla um, on each lateral aspect. Um, all right. When we think about anatomy of the lip, we have... Um, mucosa, we have orbicularis muscle and we have skin. We also have the levator labi superioris that's going to um, insert and help um, elevate the lip. All right. Arterial supply of the lip is going to be the oh, facial superior yeah. labial artery. Exactly. So you're going to have the inferior and superior labial arteries that branch off the facial artery. Um, and then you also have, um, nerve sensation is going to come from V2 or, um, of the trigeminal nerve and then, uh, cranial nerve seven or the facial nerve is going to um, provide motor innervation mm -hmm. to the area. All right. So let's talk about some of the soft tissue anatomy. Well, we have, um, the red portion of the lip is called the vermilion. Um, you have both a wet and a dry vermilion. So, um, when you just sort of think about the area that you might, um, frequently put lipstick on. If you were putting lipstick on someone's lips, that would be on the dry vermilion. Then you have a red line. This is the junction of the wet and the dry vermilion. The white roll is just above um, the border of the vermilion cutaneous junction. And often um, when we're doing like a lip repair in the ED, if we have um, a patient who's had trauma and injury to their lip, what's the most important thing that you're doing? You want to line that maybe up. Yeah, that vermilion border is really important. Um, just, you know, even maybe like one or two millimeters can be different, can, mm -hmm. of difference can be appreciated at a conversational distance. All right, then we have the filtral columns. This is the dermal insertion of the orbicularis muscle and then the fil filtral dimple, which is sort of the dimple in between the two filtral columns. Cupid's bow is the curvature of the central white roll. The white roll is that um, sort of reflective tissue that's just above the border of that vermilion cutaneous junction. And so Cupid's bow is the curvature of, of the white roll with the peaks being the inferior part of the filtral column. All right. Yeah. You're now an expert in lip anatomy. 
Very important for lip laceration repair. Yes, as well as cleft lip repair. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's briefly touch on some of the anatomy of the palate. Mm -hmm. So we touched on this a little bit before when Mm -hmm. we first started out. We have a soft palate, which is posterior, and then the hard palate is anterior. This is further divided by the incisive foramen. So we said the primary palate is anterior to the incisive foramen, and the secondary palate is posterior to the incisive foramen. All right, Rosie. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of the Vogue classification? I have. I love the Vogue classification. So let me tell you about it. Okay. <laughs> um, so the Vogue classification is a system of classifying palatal defects in cleft palate. And so it's a scale that goes from one to four, and it goes from a cleft of the soft palate only to a bilateral cleft palate. Um, if you think about it, the palate zips from, what is it, front to back? That's the way somebody explained it to me. It like zips. And so it may be, I don't know. I don't remember how they describe it. It was a great thing. Okay. I'm going to leave this part. All right. Let's cut this out. a really great analogy. And I can't remember it, but anyway. Um, so it's a system that goes from one to four and it describes the clefts sequentially. So a cleft of O1 is a cleft of the soft palate only. So only in the back of O2 is a cleft of the soft and hard palate to the incisive foramen of O3 is a complete unilateral cleft lip and palate. So it goes all the way up and through. And then a VO4 is a complete bilateral cleft lip and palate. Awesome. And the VO classification is one of the best types of classifications in plastic surgery or just in surgery in general, because not only does the classification help describe the severity of the cleft, it helps you describe what the diagnosis is, but it also helps determine what the treatment is. Mm-hmm. And so I, when I was learning, was really confused about all the different types of treatment for cleft palate and the different types of surgeries very confused about why you would use what in different scenarios and the VO classification in my understanding, at least really helps you organize out when you're going to do what type of surgery. And in mm-hmm. our institution, we allow the VO classification to really drive the type of palate repair that we're going to do. Mm-hmm. All right. Really briefly, the soft palate muscles are also called the velum. The main function here is for speech and for eating. It helps close down um, between the nasopharynx and the oropharynx. And when you're thinking about repairing a cleft palate, um, these patients, their muscles don't, um, they're not in an anatomic position because they have a cleft in the midline. The muscles that would typically um, cross over that midline, like the levator, veli palatini, aren't able to cross over. Um, they're instead in sort of a longitudinal direction. And so they don't function as well. So part of your repair is not just closing that cleft, but trying to put those muscles back into an anatomic position. So I mentioned the levator veli palatini. That's one of the primary um, muscles that serves as a palate elevator. Also the tensor veli palatini helps to open eustachian tubes and dysfunction here is one of the primary reasons why a lot of cleft patients may have ear infections and other issues um, and pathology associated to hearing. And then there's sort of a slew of other muscles um, that are also sometimes discussed, the palatopharyngeus, the polyglossus, the musculi, musculus uvuli, the superior pharyngeal constrictor, the salpingopharyngeus, and the stylopharyngeus. Primary blood supply to our hard palate is going to be the greater palatine artery, and for the soft palate is the ascending pharyngeal and ascending palatine arteries. Innervation from a sensory perspective, primary, greater, and lesser palatine nerves, which are branches from cranial nerve five, and all of the muscles um, in this area are going to be innervated by the pharyngeal plexus, which is cranial nerve nine, 10, and 11, except the Mm. the tensor um, and that's innervated by cranial nerve five. And that is a common test question that we get. So I was literally reading the next paragraph and I was like, just 
Oh yeah. So Rosie, I didn't realize that I like hear this term alveolus when I'm mm. first learning. I'm very confused. Like mm. I thought, I know there's a maxilla and a mandible, but what is the alveolus? So this is the portion of the bone that holds the teeth ah. right where your teeth come out. Um, obviously in babies, they don't have teeth yet, but we have to think about that and think about the integrity of the bone because they will eventually have to hold teeth. Got it. So a cleft in the alveolus really means that there's a bony cleft in the portion of the bone that would hold the teeth. Okay. In the yeah. Right. And you also have some alveolar bone that's in your mandible that holds the teeth in your mandible. You do. All right. So different institutions are going to have some different, um, maybe some different you know, nuances of how they name their clefts mm-hmm. um, and how they describe them in our notation. Um, at our institution, we use a nomenclature that really is just going to list out all of the factors that could be at play here. So in order to understand how to name clefts, you really just have to understand the components of clinically examining a cleft. So you would like to know what side, if this is a unilateral, is it a unilateral or a bilateral? Is the cleft complete or is it incomplete? Is there a cleft of the alveolus? Is there a cleft of the palate? And if so, what is the bow classification? And so that's how we do our, our nomenclature at our institution. All right, Rosie, let's talk about treatment. Mm, okay. So um, you want to make sure that you're treating the soft tissue and skeletal defects, and these all have different ages at which we treat them. Um, the reason that we treat them at different ages is because of the growth of the bone, because we're often manipulating these bony segments, which are the centers of growth for the maxilla. Awesome. So something that Rosie's mentioning right now, which is really important is the more soft tissue dissection you do off bone in a, in somebody who's skeletally immature, the higher likelihood that you could be impacting their growth potential. So if we were to elevate all of the periosteum and dis- do all of this dissection around the growth centers, then with time, these patients might not grow as much in these areas. This can be one primary reason why some patients with cough lip and or palate end up with mid-face hypoplasia because of the manipulation and surgery in that area. Okay. What else are we thinking about as it relates to timing of, um, of surgical intervention for these patients? So we want to kind of, at least at our institution, we want to minimize the surgeries that we do, um, less time on our anesthesia, less risk, et cetera. Um, and so our goals of surgery, we want to make sure we are working on the speech, um, especially early on. And then we work on appearance and occlusion. Okay. So some important things that Rosie mentioned is that whenever we're thinking about operating for these patients, we really want to minimize the number of operations they get. There's this old model where people would undergo surgery, you know, once per year. And that's really not our goal. We're thinking about speech, appearance, and occlusion. But I do want to circle back just to one more thing that we're thinking about when we want to think about time. And that is um, time is sometimes referred to as the fourth dimension. So you want it to work for you and not against you. If you're going to do, um, say, like a Lafort osteotomy for a patient who has mid-phase hypoplasia, you want to wait till that patient has skeletal maturity so they don't relapse, right? So you want their mandible and the rest of their face to be at sort of their adult um, shape and size. So that way, once you do that surgery, you're doing a definitive surgery. The same could be true for rhinoplasty. If you do, you know, potentially too much surgery before they've grown, then, then you could be having some relapse or it might impact your ultimate result. At the same time, you want to use time to your advantage. So at least at our institution, when we do a primary cleft lip, we are often doing some degree of nasal work 
Um, and then we allow with time that patient to have a much more um, anatomically positioned, um, you know, an anatomic position of many of the nasal elements. So that way with time and growth, they have a more native appearing or anatomically appearing nose. Mm -hmm. Generally, the earlier interventions focus more on appearance and symmetry. Um, and then later on, they focus on function. They do. Yeah. This is my research. <laughs> I love it. This is like, this is great. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> that's what I'm saying. We put the nostrils back looking okay. I see what you're saying when you're talking about the nose. Yeah. Okay. When we're talking about the nose, that makes I love the sense. Nose. All right, so we have a whole team as part of our cleft team. We have plastics often. Um, we have an orthodontist or a cleft dentist. We have speech pathology. We have ENT. We have audiology, social work, and a case manager. And at many institutions, um, patients are seen in a very like multidisciplinary um, in a multidisciplinary way to help drive and organize their care. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So let's get a little bit into the nitty gritties of the timing of different surgeries. I remember as a medical student trying to understand, and probably even as a junior resident, we do a lot of different surgeries for patients who have clefts. Let's try to go through in a little bit of a systematic way when we do certain operations and why we do certain operations. And we will have a full disclosure that institutionally people, things may be different. People have, um, different surgeons may have come across different things. And this is really driven by kind of our experience and what we get in our institution. Mm -hmm. So, um, generally this is, a, the order is fairly universal. The, the number of surgeries and timing can differ a little bit, but generally you do a cleft lip repair at around three months of age. Um, and so that is because we want to balance the risk of anesthesia with the ability to correct the lip. Um, there is the thought that correcting the lip can actually improve the, the way that the palate grows as well um, and make your, your next surgery a little bit easier. So you do kind of small adjustments here. You do, you can do a little bit of adjustment with the nasal tip and the ALA um, to correct some of those deformities as well. And then we also have the option of doing a GPP, which is a gingivo periosteoplasty. Whoa, that's a lot of words. Yeah, so we just say GPP in the OR because yeah. less likely to mess that one up. And what is that all during the cleft lip surgery at our institution? Um, but this is the technique of kind of bringing together the mucoperiosteal flaps of the alveolus, which if you remember is the tooth holding segment of bone. So the, basically the mucosa right above that segment. Um, and if you adhere, adhere those earlier and hear those early, then that helps the bone grow together with some time. Yeah. So um, just to kind of add on to what Rosie's saying. Um, doing a GPP at the initial cleft lip repair is not something that we always can do. If the alveolar segments are too far apart and we think it would require too much dissection to reapproximate the mucoperiosteal flaps um, and sort of risk hypoplasia of that area later, then you know we wouldn't do that at the primary surgery. Um, there is some thought that doing a GPP early on at the time of your cleft lip might decrease the need for alveolar bone grafting in the future. And I think this is sort of an active area of research mm -hmm. and something that we're really lucky to have here is something called NAM, which is nasoalveolar molding. And this helps bring together the alveolar segments, helps reposition the nasal cartilages and elongates the columella and different institutions sometimes use different things. Mm -hmm. It's an orthodontic procedure. It looks like a slip in retainer for a kid. Um, and it's done usually before the cleft lip surgery and over a series of months, you kind of use molding to it's nasoalveolar molding. So you move and mold the 
the actual different structures together because they're still kind of pliable since the child is young. Awesome. And when those kids get NAM, they see our craniofacial orthodontist really early after birth, they get their mold made and then they're in um, that office, you know, every week getting adjustments. And so mm -hmm. it definitely does um, require some support and, and impact the family. However, it makes the surgery for when the cleft lip comes, repair comes around at three months of age, it makes that surgery a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. All right, next surgery we do is the cleft palate. This is often between nine and 18 months, um, maybe more typically between nine and 12 months. The key driver here is to optimize speech. Um, so the goal is to have this repaired prior to the child um, starting to do you know, some of their early speech. And the goal is to close the nasal and oral cavities and then also reposition the levator muscle from being longitudinal on the palate um, to sort of crossing, um, connecting back to itself. Um, you also um, are thinking about minimizing growth disruption um, by surgical dissection at mm -hmm. this time and, and sort of the timing of that. Risks here is risk of fistula formation between the nose um, or the oral cavity and the nasal cavity, risk of BPI, which we're going to talk about next, and then mid-face hypoplasia. Mm -hmm. All right, Rosie, what is BPI? BPI is velopharyngeal insufficiency. Um, and usually what you hear or what you notice in a child with BPI, um, the cause of it is that their palate doesn't touch the back of their nasopharynx when they're trying to make some of the, the sounds or trying to occlude that area when they're swallowing. Um, and so you get kind of a hypernasal voice or you may have food or um, like water regurgitation, nasal regurgitation. Yeah. So essentially this kid has maybe their palate repair is intact. Like they don't necessarily have a fistula, but the muscles of the palate aren't functioning well, or they don't have enough tissue to function. Mm -hmm. Okay. That makes sense. What do we, what do we do about that? So repair of VPI uh, is usually done around four to six years old because the main marker for this is speech. So you have to have a speech evaluation right around three or four, and then your timing just goes after that. Um, and so we are doing things like building up the back of the nasopharynx or moving some tissue to help provide basically a stopper. So when those muscles move, they can press against that instead. And yeah. your so essentially like we're trying to, one thing we could do is try to improve the muscle opposition or the function. So mm -hmm. that could be doing like, um, through, um, a furlough double opposing Z plasty, um, where we're putting those muscles back together, lengthening the palate. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the other two surgeries that we often do for this is a pharyngeal flap or a sphincter pharyngeoplasty. And we'll talk a little bit about in those different options in a couple of minutes. Mm -hmm. All right. Next up on the, oh, and I guess I should add, I, I think you probably mentioned this, but, but not all kids require VPI surgery. Mm -hmm. So true. when you're thinking about the timeline for operations for these patients, if they have a cleft lip and palate, then yes, they will undergo surgery to repair the lip. They'll undergo surgery to repair the palate. And then the VPI surgery is just a, and the VPI surgery is just an optional thing based on what, if they have VPI. Mm -hmm. All right. Next we have the potential for an ABG or an alveolar bone graft. Mm -hmm. This often is between seven and 12 years. Here you're looking for the patients to have mixed dentition. And so we talked about how some of the patients with the cleft lip will also have a cleft of their alveolus. Maybe the GPP was performed at the time of the lip repair. Maybe it wasn't. However, the thought 
or the reason that a patient would require an alveolar bone graft is that they don't have sufficient bone in the alveolar region. They have a persistent cleft and an adult tooth will not stay unless it has bone to support it. Mm -hmm. So the key here is to do the bone grafting around the time of the um, eruption of these teeth. And so you'll make this decision in conjunction with your dental team. Um, and then often that patient will require some orthodontic work to move teeth around, prepare for the bone graft, um, maybe expanding the dental arches. You might be removing teeth, um, sort of residual baby teeth that are loose or potentially about to fall out. All right. We at our institution, a lot of times take this bone graft from Iliac Crest, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that's what all places do. There's plenty of um, different areas, like, you know, the tibia is another common area that people um, harvest bone graft from. Mm -hmm. And we often are doing both a combination of cortical and cancellous bone. Mm -hmm. All right. Next up. And again, the alveolar bone graft, similar to the VPI, is sort of, I don't want to say optional, but this is not something that all patients ultimately end up requiring. Mm -hmm. All right, Rosie, what is a Lafort one and why are we doing that? So again, this is something that you have to evaluate your patient later on and not all will need the Lafort procedure, but um, the Lafort procedure, you know, named after the Lafort uh, fracture pattern is an operation that will help advance the maxilla in patients with maxillary hypoplasia due to cleft lip or palate. Awesome. Um, or due to other syndromes if they need it. Yeah. This is done usually around skeletal maturity. So in the late teens, so usually after 16. Um, and also, yeah, go ahead. Oh, because you don't want to have a, additional like mandible growth that makes what you just did obsolete. Yeah. And you want to make sure that all of the adult teeth have erupted since the osteotomies in the maxilla would have the potential to injure those teeth. Mm -hmm. That's very important. Awesome. So again, that's something that's not required for all patients, but um, in patients that have mid-phase hypoplasia or class three malocclusion. Class three malocclusion, real quick, class one malocclusion is where your maxillary teeth are in front of your mandibular teeth in sort of a, an anatomic position. If that's too far in front, that's class two. And then if your maxillary teeth are behind your mandibular teeth, then that's class three. And uh, the way I think about it is, in malocclusion class one, your teeth are, they look like they're in the right place, but they're all kind of crooked, at least in the, these in, beautiful pictures that I look at, yeah. they're kind of crooked. Class two, I call it an overbite. Class three, I call it an underbite. Exactly. That's another easy way to think about it. Please don't tell me if you're an orthodontist. And <laughs> there are specific teeth that this <laughs> determination is based off of, but that's a little beyond the scope of what you all need to necessarily know at the onset. Just a blue collar plastic surgeon. <laughs> And then the last surgery that these patients may or may not elect to have is a rhinoplasty, sort of a formal rhinoplasty for patients after they've reached their skeletal maturity and after they've had any um, osseous work like a Lafort one osteotomy or something like that, you would want to do this at the end. Mm -hmm. All right. So real quick types of repairs. There's a bunch of different types of cleft lip repairs. Historically, there's a lot of different um, named repairs. Mm -hmm. The most common repairs that are currently used now is a modification of the Millard rotation advancement. Um, this is a cut as you go technique and the Fisher repair. And this is a geometric based um, markings are based on measurements. Um, you do all of your markings, you make all of your incisions and then you perform your cleft lip. Mm -hmm. And at our institution, at least we're lucky enough to have um, two different um, cleft lip surgeons who one does each. Um, so we get to to take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. um, and then a common bilateral repair is described by Mulligan. All these are available in papers. Yes. You can find. Yes. 
The goal in thinking about your cleft lip repair is that you want to anatomically sort of put the anatomy back together, put the intraoral mucosa, the orbicularis muscle, the external skin. You want to line up the wet and dry vermilion. You want to line up the vermilion border and the white roll, the cutaneous lip area. You want to try to recreate the filtral columns, close the floor of the nose, do any possible cleft nasal work and GPP at that time. All right. So cleft palate repairs, there is a couple different um, types of repairs. And as Rosie had discussed previously, the VO classification, at least at our institution and our education really drives the type of repair you would mm -hmm. use. All right, soft palate, VO1, mm -hmm. options are? So for a VO1, your cleft is only in soft palate. There's something called an intravelar veloplasty, which is essentially a straight line repair. You make your cuts um, right on the cleft edges. And then you, this is only if the cleft is close enough together where you can primarily bring the muscles back together and approximate them and then bring, you know, you bring on either side, nasal mucosa and then oral mucosa. Yeah, oral mucosa. Other option for VO1 is the furlough double opposing Z-plasty. Mm -hmm. This is two layered Z-plasties on top of each other that both help um, reposition the muscle in the anatomic position and help to lengthen the palate. Types of closure for VO2. Um, so, this is going to be a cleft of the soft palate and the hard um, palate up to the incisive foramen. The two options here are a von Langenbach palatoplasty and a VO Wardell Kilner. Um, and then, lastly, a VO3. This is a complete unilateral cleft lip and palate or a complete bilateral cleft lip and palate is the VO4. And here, the primary repair is a Bardock two flap palatoplasty. If you think about it logically, if you have a complete cleft, you physically have to have two flaps that come together. So that's the way I remember it. I love it. I love it. Um, all right. VPI surgery here, you're doing this for the velopharyngeal dysfunction. Preoperatively, you're evaluating the motion of the palate and the function. You want to appreciate sort of what the velum is doing, what the lateral walls are doing. Options, as we mentioned, you can lengthen the palate with the furlough double opposing Z-plasty. You can also reduce the opening between the nasal and oral pharyngeal areas, either with a pharyngeal flap or a sphincter pharyngeoplasty. There's also been some attempts to sort of build up that posterior pharyngeal space with placing filler or fat, different types of graft materials. At least in our institution, that really hasn't sort of taken off. And I think some of the, the standard um, methods to approach this are, are either going to be through a pharyngeal flap or a sphincter pharyngeoplasty. All right. I think that's pretty good. Yeah. I think we talked through pretty much all of the operations that you might see in the cleft lip and palate world. And especially important are the timings and types of repair that you can use. Yeah. So just to kind of summarize, we talked a little bit about the epidemiology and the embryology, um, what the risk factors are for cleft lip and palate. We talked about our clinical exam, some associated syndromes. Um, we talked about the anatomy and what we're doing for interventions and the timing. I think that's awesome. That is awesome. That is like the fastest and most comprehensive cleft summary. I think it's super helpful. Good. Like well, everyone, good luck. Yeah. Um, Thanks good. so much for listening. Um, hopefully this is helpful to you guys. So find us on the resonantreview.com. Lily, thanks so much for hanging out. Um, and feel free to share these episodes with friends so we can all sound really smart together in the hour. I love it. <laughs>